really appreciate that. And one last time to remind you, you can still make your 2022 uh, Faith Promise commitment to help couples like the Fernandez do what they are doing, which is exciting stuff. Amen? Good stuff. Well, hey, we're looking at Martin, the story of Martin Luther, and we're looking how light comes into the darkness. After the darkness of the Middle Ages came the light of the Reformation. And last week, we saw the story of Martin Luther so far. We saw that he was a Catholic monk seeking the light of salvation at the end of the Dark Ages. And we covered his life from 1483 to 1517. And basically, his life is like your life if you're born again this morning. There's a before Christ, there's a coming to Christ, and there's how your life has changed after Christ. And we saw his coming to Christ began as a student lawyer encountered death. And the question that began to really dwell on his heart is, where will I go when I die? And he almost died at 19, and he still hadn't seen a Bible ever. But he decides to become a serious or a sincere monk that goes on a search for salvation. And he begins to ask the question, What must I do to be saved? Because he has a second encounter with death when he almost gets struck by lightning. And here he asked for uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, to help him. Here he asked for the patron saint of minors because his dad was a a minor. And he begins this quest. And literally, it's going down, but what he's really doing is climbing the ladder of success in the, in the Catholic Church. He's trying to work his way rung by rung according to what the Catholic Church taught of how to be saved. Well, become a monk, get separate from the world, then become a priest, handle the, the mass and handle the very body and blood, do more penance, suffer more, and uh, look at more relics. And hey, where can you find more holy people and more holy relics than Rome? And yet that was more corrupt uh, than, uh, than he could even imagine. So he becomes a Bible scholar, and it's when we open the Bible that hearts get open. And with open hearts come open doors to share the gospel like the Fernandez are doing in their country. And he comes to the conclusion, the only answer to what must I do to be saved is found in Scripture alone. And so that's where we were. And so for over five years, as a Bible scholar, he studies Psalms, He studies Romans, he studies Galatians, and he studies Hebrews, and he comes to Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 was the verse that God used, the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God to produce life in his heart. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to more works. No, from faith to faith, as it is written... But the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, while reading this verse, God revealed to Luther the answer to the question that he had been looking for on this 12, this, uh, 12-year quest of what must I do to be saved. And the, lance, the answer that Luther had been taught was, works religion says, believe 
Yeah, believe in Christ, but you do. You have to do good works. It's Christ plus good works. Believe plus do. Do what you must do and hope for the best. You're never sure. That was his answer. But in finding in Romans 17, he learned, believe in what Christ has done, what Christ is still doing, and what Christ has yet to do, and rest in his best. That's a totally different answer. Now look at that. This is a hope-so faith, and this is a no-so faith. Why? Because it's not based on me. It's based on the one who has done is doing at the right hand of the Father and has yet come to do but will accomplish. Isn't that beautiful? And uh, I think Jeff Riddout gave me this quote. uh, Our works, this is from Luther, our works do not generate righteousness. Rather, our righteousness in Christ generates works. Okay, and that's a Luther quote, and that's, that's the idea. Here is works trying to generate righteousness, but here, when we receive the righteousness by Christ, He changes our lives. And so today, what I want to do for the rest of our study is to show you how the righteousness of Christ transforms a life. Listen, listen, if you profess Christ, you don't remain in your sin. Now, we struggle with sin, we will still sin, and though we sin, we're still righteous in Christ, but the Holy Spirit is there. The righteous, you have a new heart, and so the the idea that I'm going to live in sin and be comfortable at it is just not the case. Luther's life was changed. The light of the gospel had shone in the darkness of his heart, and we are reminded again, and we're going to see today, that the most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon purpose, and that's the Great Commission, getting the light of the gospel out into the darkness. So that's the story so far. Now today, let's see uh, the, 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 common, the saying, the rest of the story. Let's look at the rest of the story, and we're going to see a reformer sharing the light of salvation at the dawn of a new age. Uh, Luther and the Reformation is a transition from the, the medieval dark ages to the modern age, and the Reformation led the way in that. Let me give you this quote from a student of Luther about this man and his impact. He was a man of middle stature, with a voice which combined sharpness and softness. It was soft in tone, sharp in the enunciation of syllables, words, and sentences. He spoke neither too quickly nor too slowly, but at an even pace, without hesitation, and very clearly. If even the fiercest enemies of the gospel had been among his hearers, they would have confessed from the force of what they heard, that they had witnessed not a man, but a spirit. In other words, Luther had passion. And I'm telling you, when you study history, not just church history, but all of history, those who win the day, now ultimately God's in control, we know that, but those that win the day in the moment are those with passion. And sometimes those with passion 
are evil and sometimes they are righteous. Luther was a man of passion. And to be honest with you, we should all have burning hearts of passion for sharing the light in the darkness, right? This should be our passion. So we're studying Luther, but we're seeing, hopefully, ourselves. First thing that Luther does is he nails it. What's he do with the light of the gospel? He nails it in 1517. We've talked a little bit about it. He hammers 95 statements of debate, called 95 Theses, on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, where he's a monk, on All Saints' Eve, October 31st. Now, there's three words I want you to define so that you can understand this story, and they're there in your notes. Penance, indulgences, total indulgence. If you understand what these are, you'll understand why he nailed uh, these things to the door, which were like the blog post, the Internet of that day. They were the bulletin board of the community. So the first thing that he did... He attacked the abuses of indulgences, not the proper practice of them. So what I mean by that, he attacks the abuses, meaning he's still a Roman Catholic. He's not trying to, he's not like all of a sudden, I am a Protestant. He doesn't even know what that means yet, okay? He's just saying, look, I'm a Roman Catholic, but we need to do this right. And so he attacks the abuses of penance indulgences and total indulgence. Let's look at penance. Penance was one of seven sacraments. Okay, the seven sacraments are the means of salvation in the Roman Catholic Church that dealt with confession and satisfaction, which was administered by priests. So when you did something wrong, you didn't merely repent and ask for forgiveness. You had to do penance, and you had to do it and confess it to a priest, and then satisfy God by doing whatever the priest told you to do. Now, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are simply rituals and works that one has to do to be saved. But even then, you could never be sure of your salvation, because you never know if you did enough or if you did it with the right motive, right? You're always looking inward now. You're always wondering, have I done enough? Plus, the punishment of purgatory was always waiting for you after you died. So no matter how much penance you did and how satisfied you might think God was satisfied, you still were not holy enough to enter into his presence when you died. You had to suffer more in purgatory, basically thousands and even millions of years. These rituals of the church literally ruled over your life from cradle to grave. So you had baptism as an infant to last rites at your death. The church ruled over your life. But doing penance was hard work, and purgatory was a long time. And so indulgences indulgences are an issue. What are indulgences? They're documents prepared by the church to sell to sell to individuals either for themselves or on behalf of the dead. And so here's what an indulgence did. Oh, penance, that's tough stuff. Let's get you an easier way for the right price. The living purchaser or, the de- uh, or as a result, the living purchaser or the dead loved one would be released from purgatory for a certain number of years. Not for 
not for not immediately, but for a certain. You could lessen your time. You could lessen your time, but you were still going to have time. The priest who sold the priests who sold these indulgences would boldly teach confession, saying what your sin was, plus contrition, showing that you're sorry for your sin, plus a contribution, paying for a few less years suffering in purgatory, would equal less condemnation. Not no condemnation as there is in Christ, less condemnation. So, Two things. It got you out of purgatory and it raised money for the church. Okay? And at the time of Luther, what they were raised, the church was raising money for was they were building St. Peter's Basilica, which is now called the Vatican. And so they had a building project, and building projects mean money, and you need to raise money. And so they raised money by this religious racket to exploit the guilt of people. But here's where the total indulgence. You can only get so much money for less suffering. How about we offer a total indulgence? A total indulgence releases a person from purgatory, a person from purgatory totally, but was seldom offered. Now, why would that be seldom offered? Yeah, because once you got it, you didn't have to pay anymore, right? I don't need that. And so we need this income. So you kind of only want to do it kind of once a generation, basically, because that generation, if, if, they, if they can afford it, would then be free from your religious racket. In other words, sins were forgiven. Now, this is the radical thing, and it's this total indulgence since they needed a lot of money for St. Peter's Basilica, and when you need a lot of money, they, they did this total indulgence, which is going to be very costly. After all, it would get you, you know, your get-out-of-jail-free card, right? And so uh, they were doing this, and this meant that sins were forgiven before they'd even been confessed, and done any penance. So this was a great spiritual bargain for a Roman Catholic, right? The Pope seller of this particular total indulgence was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And he wasn't allowed to hawk this total indulgence in the area where Luther was a, a, a pastor because Frederick the Wise, remember last week I said he had all these relics? He had one of the largest collections. So Frederick says, you can't sell your total indulgence here. Why? Because then my business would crash, right? And so they couldn't sell. The problem was that Luther's parishioners were then crossing the border and going and buying a, a Tetzel total indulgence. And therefore didn't care about their sins anymore. See, here's what's sad. Sometimes, as Baptists or as those who believe the gospel, we think uh, the gospel is a sin as much as you want, get out of jail, free card. We treat the gospel like a total indulgence in the sense that we don't have to care about our sins. So what was happening among Luther's people was there was a careless, there was no repentance for sin. There was no sense of sin. There was no sense of turning to Christ or even, you know, uh, turning to the church, much less to Christ. And this was bothering Luther greatly. 
uh, Tetzel's sermons played on the fear of death and the horrible suffering of loved ones in purgatory. They often ended with this now famous phrase. So he would preach passionately, you know, guilt you up about your loved ones burning in purgatory, pay, set them free. And he would say, once the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And you can imagine what this did on the hearts of these people in this darkness. What the common person heard was, purchase forgiveness for your sins. Buy your way out of purgatory. Pay without having to bother with true repentance or doing any penance. And as I said, the sale of this was to uh, promote the building project of St. Peter's Basilica to finance the church. The sale was used to finance church projects like the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So Luther nails his concerns about this practice to the church doors and others immediately uh, translate what he had written in Latin into German and they begin to publish it with the new invention of the printing press well luther follows their example number two luther publishes the light in the darkness he not only nails it he publishes it with the gutenberg press i don't know who this young man is but here he is standing in front of a replica sized model of the gutenberg press i mean gwen are those some legs those are awesome legs aren't they so there you go And this thing was like having a smartphone. Okay, this was the smartphone in their age. It was going to unleash the publication to the world. Here's what one church historian says about the printing press. Uh, Luther publishes convictions with the aid of this new invention. Here's what the historian says. The printing press is crucial. For the first time in history... News and ideas could be transmitted in a stable form across vast areas of land and throughout populations. Okay, we can't even relate to that. Okay, we can't even relate to that. It would be like flipping a switch from having total darkness to total light, from having no communication to having smartphones. That was the impact of the printing press. This historian says, of course, most people could not read. But Reformation pamphlets often had graphic and sometimes even pornographic woodcuts which communicated even to the illiterate who were the, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Thus, we have the possibility of mass movements and the arrival of popular opinion. It just, it, again, does what social media does in our age. Cheap print also fueled the rise of literacy. Now you actually had something to read. Therefore, you said, I want to learn to read. Now, looking on this next slide, you can see. Now, here's some of the... So, because most of these people are illiterate, so you have these graphic cartoons, right? So, here's an anti-Catholic one. The Pope is sitting here with one uh, uh, one of his papal documents condemning those who uh, did not uh, obey the church. And these peasants are supposed to come and kiss his feet and bow in, in, uh, in, uh, in obedience to him. But instead of showing reverence, 
They're farting in his face, okay? Now, pardon me, there was more graphic ones I could use today, but I, you know, we're here, okay? And so instead of showing reverence, and there was this building, uh, this writing is in Latin and Italian. There was a building in the Vatican that in Italian means a beautiful view. And so what this says is, instead of bowing in reverence, they're showing the Pope their beautiful view. By I mean, so, I mean, this is like, you know, this is, I mean, this is like great stuff, right? All the guys here are like, man, I can, yeah, that's cool. Okay, so the Catholics, though, uh, they responded with their graphic images. So here's Luther, the monk, who's being played like a bagpipe by the devil, okay? And you can see there's just really some graphic things in that he's blowing into uh, Luther's ear and Luther is playing out of his nose what the the Pope wants. I mean, you need to Google these. They're they're just some fun things. Uh, Well, maybe not fun, but they're interesting. Now, let's go to the next slide and we'll see. Luther publishes... Though there is content, okay, being published. And Luther publishes uh, these three, these are the three most important things he publishes. And when he publishes these three articles, there's no turning back. It was like a line in the sand and something was going to happen. It was light in the darkness. So let's look at these. The first one is the address to the Christian nobility of the germination. So now what he's doing is Luther's turning from the Pope and saying, hey, his authority is invalid. I'm appealing to the German leaders of our German country and saying, hey, you civil leaders need to bring reform to our country. Because basically what the Pope was doing was extorting these nations that were not yet nation states, these regions, and, and, and squeezing them for money. And these German princes are like, why are we paying taxes to Rome when we ought to be taxing, getting the benefit of our own taxes, right? So here's what he attacked. He attacked the hierarchy and authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And he affirmed, in place of that, the authority of each believer as a believer priest to interpret the Bible and reform the church. So he's saying Christ alone is the mediator, not the Pope. And believer, uh, every believer has the right to mediate and, and go before the Lord and interpret Scripture for himself. And he basically wants the German leaders to acknowledge that and grant that freedom. The problem is, Luther, as great as that is, Luther still needs a radical reformation. He still needs the Baptists to come in and say, hey, you're still giving too much authority to civil leaders. We don't need a president or a pope's permission to gather and to read the Bible for ourselves. So he was still acknowledging a state church. So he was making headway but he still needed to be more radical. Secondly, the Babylonian captivity of the church. The title comes from Luther's conviction that Christians had been carried away from the Scripture and into the captivity of the Pope. So he's asking for civil authority here. He's attacking papal authority here. He attacked the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, especially Mass. 
And so the seven from cradle to grave, and I won't list them all. You can look those up. But here's what he said. He said, out of these seven, I reject five. There's only two valid sacraments, and it's the two that we've been learning as a church, water baptism and today the Lord's Supper. So he's challenging the, their, their means of work salvation by rejecting five out of the two ordinances because only two are found in Scripture. All right? That's why he's doing that. But he still needs a radical reformation. Why? Because he didn't fully embrace believers' baptism. He's like, oh, yeah, baptism is a, a, a sacrament, but it's a sacrament that is given to infants before they get saved, before they can even know the gospel, and it's a sacrament that still saves people. So, sadly, Luther still believed in a form of baptismal regeneration while still affirming justification by faith alone. Now, you ought to say, that doesn't make sense. And I say to you, exactly. He's reforming. He's coming out, but he needs a radical reformation. So, when, when Luther would, would scream out to the devil, I have been baptized, he didn't mean what you and I would mean when we say, I have been baptized, because he meant, I was baptized as an infant, and that saved me, but I have also accepted Christ by justification by faith. Again, you should look at me and say, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. He was in darkness. He's coming out. He's reforming. But he still needs a radical Reformation from, uh, and it's, and I'm not labeling that as Baptist. I'm labeling that as New Testament Christianity. But Baptists and other Bible-believing churches are the ones who affirm believers' baptism. Call your church whatever you want, but affirm believers' baptism, being baptized on the right side of salvation, and being baptized not as a means of that saving you, but as a witness to what Christ has already done for you. Then the third article was this. The third article was on the freedom of the Christian man. And he sent this as an open letter to Pope Leo X, who was the Pope at that time. And he wrote, I am a poor man, and I have no other gift to offer. I love it. What he's saying is, look, I have nothing to offer you except the light of the gospel. And guess what, Pope? You need it, too. I needed it. You need it. And he, he attacked, here he attacks the theology. So what he's done is he attacked the authority of the church by saying, hey, German uh, leaders, you need to establish a reform opposing the Pope. Here he attacked the ritual and the works uh, means of salvation, the seven sacraments, and here he's getting down to the doctrine, which is key. And here's what he did. He affirmed justification by faith alone and the priesthood of all believers as a result of personal faith in Christ, and then in small print, and also being baptized. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's how this is working for him. Here's what he said. A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. A good biblical understanding of headship 
and submission. But he still needed a radical reformation because he did not fully apply the idea of Christian freedom to what is called soul liberty. In other words, he, he said, yeah, you're free from the Pope, but guess what? My German prince can still tell you what you ought to believe. You're free from the Pope, but if you differ with me, you could still be uh, burned at the stake. Because as long as you have a state church, if you reject the, the doctrine of a state church, a state church has the ability to arrest you and execute you. Does this make sense? So what he needed was a radical reformation that would separate church and state, which is a New Testament principle and which is a principle that came with the radical reformers, particularly Baptists around the world, affirm that. So what happens after this? Uh, bad news for Luther. Luther is excommunicated by the Pope. And again, because it's a state church and the Pope has the authority to do this, excommunicated means you are, uh, you're a marked man. Okay? And so what happened is uh, he's in this very same year, 1520, just three years after he posts his debate about penance and indulgences. Why was he so successful? As a writer, why was the Pope so threatened by Luther? Well, Luther has already given us that answer. I did nothing. The Word did it all. The, the problem was the Bible had been chained and kept from the people. It had been kept in Latin and the people were illiterate and didn't speak Latin. Now it was being published on the Gutenberg Press and people were learning to read. And all of a sudden they're saying... You're saying this, but the Bible says this. And so Luther, number three, has to stand for it. Luther stands for it in 1521. Here's, the, here's where, how it happened. He refuses to change his beliefs. He refuses to recant when summoned by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to the city of Worms for an imperial diet. It's called the Diet of Worms. Sounds weird in English. Uh, it's a religious meeting that has civil authority. So this thing is a mammoth church, and when you stand there, it's just mammoth. And then when you think the emperor, the civil emperor is there, and the representatives of the pope are there, and they're all gathered there, and they're all looking at you and saying, you know, recant or... You're, you, you know, you're, you're Trump. Now, it was supposed to be a debate, but history had already proved with John Huss and, and, and William Tyndale that this wasn't going to just merely be a debate. It was recant or die. So he's brought before Emperor Charles V for what Luther thought would be a debate, but in reality was a court trial. So I'm going to show you a clip. What's the next slide? Show me what's the next slide. Okay, so here we are. So again, these young people have no clue who they are, Jeff. But here we are inside the church. Look at Gwen's hair. It's just looking good. Look, I have hair, first of all. So we're inside this church. What a privilege to be here. Now, here's where Luther actually did. Now there's no longer a building there. This is right next to this church. And I'm telling you, you just stand there and you just think, 
could I withstand? You're withstanding your entire culture. You're withstanding all civil authority. And you're one man. You are one man. Go to the next slide. All that's left now in that beautiful garden is one little plaque that set, marks the spot where Luther stood before the theater. Let's look at a video here and see from the movie Luther what this might have been like. Ow! This is the night before shut, he has shut, to shut up. Shut up! I feel your foul breath on my neck. Happy devil you are to see me mute. Shaking, shaking, shaking like an animal at the slaughter. Well, where's his faith now? Where's his faith now? Where's his posting now? Where's his posting now? Where's his posting now? That's his spiritual mentor. Stop it. I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First are those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the Pope's past and present. No! Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess but I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, 
will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. And they just show all the different forces there. And then the popular, the German popular peasants are like, finally, we're getting tyranny thrown off. Not necessarily saved peasants, just peasants that want light in a darkness and freedom for themselves. And so Luther stands for it. Isn't that great? You can buy that movie on Amazon. Uh, all that is deformed ought to be reformed. The word, of, the word of God alone teaches us what to be, what ought to be so, and all reform affected otherwise is vain. In other words, it is only by the word of God. Now, here's what happens. Luther leaves there. 
Now he's under death sentence. Anybody that sees him can murder him, and his books are to be banned and burned. So he is a wanted man. He is now an outlaw, and what his friends do, and actually Frederick the Wise, who was Peter Ustinov in that movie, he likes his little, his little monk, who is a great teacher and makes his university. He's like his favorite professor. And so he's like, I'm going to spare his life. And so they stage a kidnap of him on the road back to Wittenberg, and Luther is taken to the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, he grows a beard, he grows his hair out, and he's said to be Sir George the Knight. And uh, Luther says, look, I've been thrice excommunicated, first by Stoppus, my monastery mentor, then by the Pope, and now the Emperor. But he had not been refuted if he had been heard. So he he's an outlaw. You can go to the next slide. He's an outlaw, but... He hasn't been refuted. And so what? here's the Wartburg Castle where he's hiding out. It's high up on a mountain there in Eisenach, the birthplace of Sebastian Bach as well. And Luther translates it. So what's he doing when he's hiding out? He decides he's going to translate. And in amazing 10 or 11 months, it's debated, he translates the Bible into the German language for the common man. He uses the newly... Uh, Erasmus's New Greek New Testament, all these original sources are now being published. So he's got a copy of a Greek New Testament, not Latin, not the Vulgate. And he can go back to the original languages of the New Testament and he begins to translate from them into German. He completed a rough draft of the New Testament in German in 11 weeks. Okay, so this is a gifted dude. Of course, you're in a castle what else are you going to do? Well, we'd watch Netflix, but he translated the Bible into German. He translated at a rate of more than 1,500 words per day. He completed the entire New Testament in 11 months, some say 10, and the whole Bible was eventually translated into German by 1534. But in 1522, boom, With the Gutenberg Press waiting for its pages, you have the entire New Testament in the language of a common man. The most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man or woman with a common Bible committed to an uncommon purpose, which is getting the light of the gospel into the darkness. Here's what Luther says about translation. If God had wanted me to die thinking I was a clever fellow, he would not have gotten me into the business of translating the Bible. Okay, hard thing, but this guy was a master. He was a master. By the end of his life, or let me say this, not only did he give the German people a Bible in their own language, but it set the standard for German language to this day. You can ask Keith Gandy, our missionary, about that. Just like what William Tyndale did translating the English Bible, Luther did for the German language translating the German Bible. His German Bible also influenced William Tyndale, who set the standard of Bible translation into English. It was hugely important. By the end of his life, Luther wrote 60,000 pages, yet he hoped that all my books would disappear and the Holy Scriptures alone be read. 
Isn't that beautiful? He translates it. Well, then the next thing he does to shine light into darkness, he marries it. He marries it. In 1525, he marries the former nun, Katerina von Bora. This is a great story. I, I, I need to do, uh, maybe Valentine, February, I'll do a whole lesson on Luther and Katie. It's a great match. Um, yeah, okay, there they are. Okay, Katharina was sent by her father to live in a monastery at the tenor age of five. So she'd been a nun all her, you know, been in a nunnery all her life. Uh, at the age of five, and became a nun as soon as possible. So she was as serious and sincere as Luther was a monk. She was a nun. She and 11 other nuns heard of the reform movement, and Katerina contacted Luther for help to be set free from the nunnery. Set us free. And on Easter Eve, April 4, 1523, Luther sent a city councilman and a merchant who sold herring fish to go set them free. And much like Lord of the Rings and the hobbits in the fish barrels, the nuns are hidden in herring barrels. Can you imagine what that smelled like? And they were, each one had their little barrel, of, uh, and they were transported out of the nunnery, and they set free. A local student wrote to a friend, A wagon load of vestal virgins just came to town, all the more eager for marriage than for life. In other words, I'll risk my life if I can get out of this nunnery and get married. God grant them husbands, lest worse befall them. Within two years, Luther was able to arrange homes and marriages and employment for all of the escaped nuns except for Katerina. And then Luther... But, you know, took one for the team and married Katerina, the the unwanted nun, and uh, and they she was twenty six and he was forty two. So there's about fifteen years, sixteen years difference. Uh, Luther's friend and colleague Philip Melanchthon was against the marriage and refused to come to the wedding uh, because he felt like Luther, being this bold, right, to marry was going to bring shame upon the movement. In other words, too much, too radical, too soon. Ultimately, Luther came to the opposite conclusion, and as he put it, there is a, quote, battery of reasons in favor of this proposal. His marriage would please his father. He's still got dad issues. It would please his father. It would rile the pope. It would cause angels to laugh and devils to weep. Will you marry me, Katerina? Okay, that's it. Isn't that beautiful? Initially, Luther considered Katerina to be overly proud, but he quickly grew to love her. He called her Kitty, my rib, Genesis 2, uh, my better half, my Lord Kate, Dr. Katerina, and Ketty, which is a play on words in German, which means chain. In other words, my ball and chain. Okay, they 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 just had a great. They revolutionized the the home and the family, and really set a standard for the Christian home. And uh, she was like a Proverbs thirty one woman. There's so much you could say about her. Anyway, she she immediately they here here they are former monk, former nun, living in a former monastery as a home, and there she ends up having six children. Uh, she uh, administered and managed the vast holding of the monastery, breeding and selling cattle, running a brewery in order to provide for their family, and a steady stream of students. So it just became like what Francis.
Francis Schaeffer did at Labrie. They did in their home and discipled and did it. She is reported to have said on her deathbed, I will stick to Christ as a burr to cloth. These guys were just farm, down-to-the-earth, Bible-believing people. Six, Luther sings it. He writes the famous Reformation hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. There it is, his handwriting, his signature. Uh, he, he studied Psalms, remember, when he became a scholar, and he brought the joy, the pain, the sorrow, and the song of the Psalms back into worship. And then, lastly, Luther blows it, sadly. And uh, Luther, in his later years, writes some very anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic material and never completely and never completely reforms according to the New Testament. The anti-Semitic stuff is, is, is brutal. Luther would die in 1546. Luther's views changed regarding Jews from compassionate to critical to condemning and even deadly, advocating for the burning of even synagogues. What happened? Well, Luther thought, now that we've recaptured the gospel, the Jews are going to see who Christ really is, and they're going to convert in droves. And when they didn't, he became depressed, he became critical, and instead of advocating evangelizing them, he advocated condemning them. And here is all because... His Reformation theology still needed some Reformation because if he would have understand Romans 9 through 11, he would have understood that the hardening was a part of God's plan. It was partial, not complete. It was temporary and not permanent. And he could have waited for the Lord's working through his progress of redemption. And still to this day, Reformed theology has this problem of replacement theology where they replace Israel with the church, and it has led often to a temptation, not always, but often to a temptation of anti-Semitic thinking towards Israel and the church. There still needed to be changed. So finally, let's end with this. Is the Reformation over? Is the Reformation, is what he started complete? And the answer is no. The Catholic Church still teaches what Luther was openly protesting. There was a counter-reformation by the Catholics at the Council of Trent. And they wrote that document. It is the official doctrine of the Catholic Church that has never, ever yet been recanted of or changed. And so no matter what your Catholic friends think, no matter what the present Pope says, the Council of Trent is still there. And you ought to read it. It's the same doctrine that, that Luther, and more importantly, the New Testament, refutes. Secondly, no, many Protestant churches have stopped short of a radical reformation according to the New Testament. There are still the the vestiges of a state church theology, particularly infant baptism, and sometimes even infant baptism for salvation and regeneration is still taught by many Protestant churches. And they have rejected believers' baptism of water full immersion only after you have professed Christ. And yet, this is not to say that the radical reformers or Baptist churches don't need reforming. 
there are still Baptists and other churches that practice believers' baptism. They got that right. They, they, reject, they reject a state church, and they advocate for soul liberty. Soul liberty means you believe what your conscience tells you by the Word of God, and we're not going to burn you at the stake for it, Rick. Okay, we're going to show you where you're wrong. Okay, we're going to say, hey, let's go back to the New Testament. We're going to practice church discipline, which we're going to talk about next week upstairs. But we're not going to kill you for it. Okay, and they so even though we may practice believers baptism, we still need to realign with Christ's word and spirit. We're in a constant state of reforming, always being reformed by God's word and by God's Spirit. Amen? And you go to Revelation 1 through 3, which is so beautiful. Revelation 1 through 3 is taught before the end times, saying that we live in a constant state of let those who have ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches and repent, or in other words, reform. And so I call you, I call myself, let us ask, where does my life not align with the scriptures? Where am I dallying in sin? What secret sin or what pet sin am I comforting myself with and deceiving myself with and not being called to repentance by the word and by the spirit? And also, who do you know in your life who still has a hope so salvation that you need to shine the light of the gospel into their darkness? Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come and we are a thankful people this morning. Thankful that the gospel light has come into our lives. Most of us here, Lord, have embraced that. And yet, Lord, we still need to humble ourselves before your word, before your spirit, and before your people. Lord, help revival to come. Beginning with me beginning with our class, beginning with our church. Let revival come. Lord, let us continue to reform according to the light of the gospel. And may we be men and women of passion like Martin Luther. And may we stand and say, I cannot and I will not recant of what is biblically true. Here I stand, I can do no other. By God's grace, in Jesus' name. May it be. Amen. Amen. Good stuff.